Today we have with us Eric Boyce, who is an uh, experienced financial and investment professional, and he's going to be sharing with us how companies can prepare for an acquisition, primarily from uh, an executive retention uh, perspective. Thank you so much, Eric, for joining us today. Uh, Mark, it's a real pleasure to be here with you. So let's kick us off and fun. share with us your background. Uh, let's start from there. Sure. Well, I, I come from a uh, from an investment background primarily. Uh, I've run research departments. I've done you know due diligence projects uh, on public and private companies. Uh, I've been a portfolio manager, uh, and, and all of those things. My career spanned you know roughly twenty seven, twenty eight years in doing all of that. So uh, I've done everything from you know put on the hard hats and walk the plant floors to understand how certain companies operate and uh, how how certain com- companies are, are structured. And I put on bunny suits. And been in clean rooms to learn how semiconductors are made, and so uh, I've transitioned that uh, now into you know the the running the investment company uh, that we have now. And what are some of the things that your investment company offers to, to business owners? Most of the wealth of an entrepreneur is tied up in the enterprise. You know, maybe they've got some assets that other people might care dearly about, but. How can we help them uh, as wealth managers and practitioners help to grow that enterprise value such that when they do exit, it's a more satisfactory exit uh, and it provides for a better next series of steps for that that entrepreneur. And 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 we feel that that's a significant void uh, that we're trying to fill in doing what we're doing. That's a great segue. So what are some of the ways that you're able to add value in terms of optimizing a company's value? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, a business owner uh, tends to have an emotional feeling as far as what their value is concerned, and mm-hmm. it's kind of an age-old problem. Uh, and you know, they might have a friend who sold a company for X multiple of EBITDA or, or revenue or whatever the case may be, or they may inherently feel that uh, you know they've had some track of growth and that well, my company is worth X. Well, how did you arrive at that value? And oftentimes they get disappointed, and the Exit Planning Institute says that. 72% of owners are uh, non not satisfied with their exit price wow. uh, or exit experience, I'll call it, which obviously includes in a large large measure what they get for their company. And and why is that? And I think a lot of that has to do with the 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 unknown. And so there are a lot of people out there that claim to be uh, you know, ex, exit uh, planners, if you will. But what, is, what does exit planning really mean? And so we wanted to dive deeper into that. And what is useful for an owner uh, you know, to, to understand or to have knowledge of to help them begin that planning process? And so uh, that's, that's what we set out to do. Now, I'm not sure if that completely answered your question, but, um, you know, but obviously having a valuation uh, is is very important. So you've got a baseline with somebody who's an independent appraiser that can use the industry standard tools to come to that value, and then from there do a uh, an assessment uh, with you know professionals that are subject matter experts in their field to give them an idea of what they're doing right, but also give them a, a sense of what the uh, anchors to that value might be. And oftentimes what we found is that the owner has no idea that those things existed or that those things had such a significant impact on, on their valuation. And so that after that period of discovery, then, you know, those owners can then address those shortcomings, you know, it, it, especially if they have, you know, one, three and 
probably you know five years you know to that exit point, whether it's a family transition or sell to a third party or what have you. Um, if they have time, then they can they can work on those things that have been identified in that process. And uh, most people, I'd say most people, most business owners, um, you know, the, the whole notion of exit planning is really foggy. You know, uh, when people, you know, approach them and say, well, you know, are you going to do exit planning? They'll say, well, I don't have any idea who I'm going to call. I don't ha- know how, how much it's going to cost or how long it's going to take. And usually they get to questions two and three. They just call a timeout and say, I'm running my business. You know, I've got to make my quarter. I've got, you know, a widget to manufacture. And uh, I just don't have the time. So in, in our view, that's a huge opportunity cost. And so uh, I think there are tools that business owners can avail themselves to uh, that can help them gain the understanding that bridges that valuation gap that in in most cases they don't even know exists. So let's dive a little deeper into what exactly exit planning means, when a business owner should do it, and some of the, the key pillars, as you kind of described, um, sure. they should be looking at. Well, I think uh, ideally you want to catch somebody who's not on the eve of a transaction, obviously. <laughs> so, um, you know, but somebody and, – and, and I would say this – you know, really for any any industry, um, particularly service industries where there's key employee risks and, you know, talents and and attributes and characteristics that you, you know, that, that are likely to not uh, be sustained in the, in the transition in the current form that has made that entity, you know, successful. But uh, anytime you can get a business owner uh, that has, you know, at least, you know, five to ten years, and that's not too early to do to do exit planning, um, you know, I know in the in, in in a lot of the entrepreneur, the small company tech development world, I mean, exit uh, exits exits are measured in terms of you know months and quarters as opposed to years. But I'm I'm talking about kind of mainstream American you know manufacturing and service businesses. Um, it's I, I would say uh, well, first and foremost that I mean age is not really uh, a, a, tr- a, a uh, best word I'm looking for is it, it shouldn't be an impediment. Is it one that you know an entrepreneur that's maybe 35 shouldn't say, "Well, I'm too young to think about this," uh, because um, you know there may be things that you know that in the enterprise, like a key person risk, that you know that they're you know they're they're so deeply tied they can't see more than you know about a a foot in front of their face, and there's something out here on the periphery that could be a huge value um, torpedo. I'll call it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, even at that level saying, you know, listen, I need to, you know, lock down this type, this person because of what they bring to this company, uh, because that's going to have value that's going to grow exponentially over a period of time. And if I want to go to the ranch or the lake in 10 years, I need to make sure that that's locked down today because I don't want to get two years down the road growing sales and all of a sudden have a, a hockey stick, you know, downward. And so it's like planning for uh, contingencies almost as it is planning for a transition, if you will. So what I'm hearing, it does, it does. What I'm I'm hearing you say is that uh, a large part of a company's value is the value of their employees, is the value of its people. Oh, no question. No question. And so when a company is looking to get acquired, they want to make sure that they have processes in place that um, retains those people. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and I, I think, um, 
you know, and that 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 speaks to culture. You know, it speaks to efficiency, uh, and it, it obviously it speaks to cost as well. And so, um, you know, when a, a potential acquirer of again, I'll, I'll use kind of. A, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll poke at the service, uh, you know, revenue model because, uh, you know, generally it's because of key relationships. Um, it's because of some key intellectual capital that's inside the firm. Um, it's uh, because of, you know, some certain way that somebody has done things and created a process that is not easily replicated if they were to suddenly disappear or get hit by the truck or, or whatever. Um, and a potential acquirer, you know, certainly in doing evaluation, and we're valuation you know, experts. So we certainly analyze those those types of things. But if you've got a key person risk, you know, that's obviously a, a haircut to value. Or if you haven't developed your talent, that's obviously a haircut to value. And, uh, you know, that could be, you know, training and development. Uh, it could be, you know, having the right organizational structure that allows your your, your best and most talented people to kind of rise rise up, but then then therein you have a retention issue too because you don't, you know, if you're promoting from within, you certainly don't want to lose that talent. But uh, I mean, a good valuation appraiser is going to take a look at the personnel issues and really, uh, really uh, uh, dive dive deep into that. Uh, and I think that's a very a very common misperception by business owners that get a valuation and say, well, you know, I had four million in revenues last year, five million this year, here's my EBITDA, and it's gone up twenty percent. That's what the company's worth. Well, yeah, that's really, really important, but these other kind of soft components and these qualitative uh, components are are I'd say almost equally as important. And it's especially critical on the eve or in the planning stages of, of an exit, because that's certainly what a buyer is going to be paying attention to. And how would you value some of those soft components? Uh, that's a very good question, and that's where valuation becomes almost as much an art as it is a science. But uh, I think you can look at, uh, you know, uh, you know, I'll poke at sales right now. So if you have a key salesperson that has a key relationship, well, how much is that relationship worth? And how much is that relationship worth over five years discounted at some percentage, some discount rate? Okay, well, we can put a value on that. And we can, you know, as we're providing a value for the inter- enterprise, well, we can, you know, put a put a haircut to value. And that's, you know, there, there are industry kind of standards, you know, for things like minority discounts and and uh, uh, control premiums. But there's also kind of some industry, um, I call them axioms for, you know, for, you know, key salespeople and things like that. You know, what kind of a haircut needs to be applied and, you know, and it could be, you know, 20, it could be 40%, you know, and if you have a key customer or key client risk, you know, how much is that worth? And what's the moat around that client? You know, how sticky is that client? You know, you, th- those, you know that, that's why, you know, valuations uh, can cost a lot of money because if you're doing the appraisal right, you're digging down and peeling off the layers of the onion to say, uh, you know, okay, well, fine, you've got a customer that's 50% of your revenue. Uh, you know, why is that? Are you sole source to that? You know, to that, uh, are you a sole source supplier or um, of some type of service to that? You know, can they make what they do or do what they do without you? Or are you, you know, a, a more of a, a commodity and, you know, and the price, the whole price elasticity question is different. 
you know, uh, you have to you have to figure out you know what what that uh, what that value proposition is and and kind of weigh that in. If that it's a it's a that's a much more nuanced answer, I think, for the question that you asked me. But <laughs> suffice it to say, um, it it depends. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm curious, like if. If a business is, is really reliant on maybe a single team member or a single supplier or a single customer, how does that uh, impact the valuation? I mean, do you increase a discount rate? How does that like, – is there like a, a calculation, yeah. that, like a rough just general calculation you kind of run us through like how that actually works? Yeah. Well, I mean it's, it's a great question, but it, uh, I, I, I'm sorry to say I'm going to give you a nuanced answer because it really does – it does uh, depend, and I think going back to my previous answer, you know, if you can put your arms around uh, what the revenue loss would be, and you know what the cost structure is, mm-hmm. uh, then you could kind of get your arms around what's the value impact. And what we, tr- well, I'd say not what we, but what a good appraiser should do is just say, you know, that's just not on. You know, let's let's just not you know look at 2019, but let's look at the continuum and maybe even look into the future. And what is that worth? Because if the valuation of a company is based on the expectation that they're going to grow at 10% for three years, well, and if you lose that, well, that's obviously not going to happen that way. And so, you know, it, it's 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 a it's an involved kind of calculation. Uh, but it does involve judgments, uh, and that's kind of the nature of business valuation. That uh, you know, no two companies are you know out of the cookie cutter mold. There's nuances in, in each. That so I know it's it, it's a it's an excellent question, and I'm glad you asked it. But it, <laughs> but it's it's just a um, uh, it, it it really does kind of depend on some of the key circumstances. But uh, a good appraiser. I'm sorry I'm being long-winded, but a good appraiser can put some mathematics around it to say what's the uh, value at risk. Do you have any any stories that you could share of a company that maybe didn't really know what their value was? There was a uh, uh, a company in the furniture distribution business uh, that had a rapid growth rate, two owners, older, um, and uh, they – you know, they had two very different, uh, differing ideas on how to grow the company. But you know, at some point, there's going to be a liquidity event just because of age. And uh, you know, I think one felt like uh, more comfortable, you know, maintaining a uh, a status quo type environment. And the other one wanted to grow, uh, but there were spatial limitations. So there was a physical plant problem where they couldn't go, where they couldn't grow that much. So you know, the one owner was confounded by by the limitations but the proposition uh, of them taking that next step was you know was exiting that space which you know they own and it had value it has value uh, but then they'd have to sell that and buy something that's more expensive you know which would have a, a you know a, you know a negative impact on the on the P&L for some p- point in time even though it might be owned in a different uh, in, d- in different company entity but that that was kind of you know a conundrum of you know it's easy to extrapolate you know business trends but you had a very uh, a hard barrier uh, to, to growth yeah um, you know that I mean that's that's one and you know something that I'll kind of bring back to kind of real real world kind of you know problems is that uh, we did a, a evaluation for a company that um, had three owners. And so part of our discovery process was, you know, ascertaining, you know, do you have a buy-sell? 
you know, what's what if one of you hits the bus tomorrow, what what is the transition plan? And, you know, because that's obviously very important, you know, in knowing, <laughs> you know, what the, the continuity uh, is going to be for the business. And, you know, two piped up and had done some estate planning, you know, and estate planning just by way of background is not designed just for people with, you know, more than $10 million in net worth. I mean, it's everybody should be doing it. And, and in this case, two of them had done it. One of them uh, had um, – uh, had part of their uh, uh, underfunded buy-sell plan that was pointing uh, that, that where the beneficiary had not been updated. And so it was pointing actually to an ex-wife that uh, he didn't know where <laughs> and, and he didn't know where she was. And the two other owners sat in this discovery process and said, we had no idea. So in that case, I'd say if you don't do the preparation, you are literally as strong as your weakest link. And mm-hmm. that, that's a great example of a weak link where in that discovery, obviously, we had to take that into consideration. They, they fixed it, uh, but, you know, it was, you know, it was a consideration because if that person left, then that's a, a massive, you know, and, and we've, I've, been, uh, I've been on the outside looking in as a consultant on several in- instances where there's been a business divorce where some two parties and one's not engaged in the business, but was an owner and then control problems and especially within families it's just it's costly in terms of you know you've got to get legal people involved and that's money you know that's distractions away from the business and that's money so you know that's anyway a good example of just you know how you can be as strong as your weakest link yeah so what are some of the the main reasons why company valuations maybe aren't as 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 high as they could be because you analyze a lot of companies yeah. Um, and so you do you see kind of consistent themes around why valuations kind of take a hit? Oh, uh, yes. And, and I'd say more often than not, it's 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 a key person risk or key client risk. Mm. Um, and um, and uh, no, I, I'd say that those two are really at the top of the list. So let's segue that into uh, sure. how do we ensure key people stay? What are some strategies? Well, uh, I think most people feel uh, it's almost a fatalistic view that if you want to keep somebody, you either pay them more or you give them a piece of the company. And, uh, you know, if you pay them more, um, you know, that, that's money in their pocket currently and it has certain tax implications. You know, they're getting taxed more, you know, but – and some people say, you know, listen, I, I want equity. Some people just want money. You know, I think as we transition from – one generation down to the millennials and then eventually to Gen Z. I mean, each generation kind of feels a little bit differently about that. And, uh, uh, and, and I, think, I think the current generation of, of employees underneath an ownership umbrella are beginning to get the sense that, you know, if I get 10% equity, what does that really do for me? Uh, I'm not in control. You know, do I really have a say? Um, am I really in the, the the inner circle, you know? And what what does it do for me? And obviously, it 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 doesn't have a, a fungible uh, value unless there's a transaction down the road or there's some kind of liquidity event or what have you. So I think the calculus has kind of changed, and I think owners still, in some respects, feel like that's a viable mechanism. But the challenge is to get them to think differently that there are other alternatives. 
out there, like uh, uh, like exe- uh, Section 162 executive bonus plans, uh, SERPs, which are supplemental executive retirement plans, and these are non-qualified plans that can provide both incentive deferral and you know in in a lot of cases some very favorable tax treatment on distributions down down the road. Uh, we've had def- quote unquote deferred compensation uh, around for uh, for quite a while, but that's an employee making voluntary deferrals of income uh, into the future. Uh, you know the, the the issue that an employee has to uh, has to wrestle with is that those assets. Uh, notwithstanding the Section 162 plan, which is different, but those uh, other non-qualified plans are, you know, basically still on the books of the company, and so they're subject to claims and forf- and forfeiture, you know, in, in bankruptcy and litigation and things like that. But those things are not as well understood in total, and I think if they if they were, uh, you'd see more companies using that as a vehicle as opposed to equity, and so. You know, if an employee, you know, you put, you can put vesting schedules. You know, the the idea with non-qualified is that you can single out a specific group. I could say, Mark, you are essential to my business. I'm going to create a plan just for you. You know, and that's complete anathema to the whole qualified plan world that lives under ERISA. Um, you know, the 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 uh, ERISA Act of 1974, which governs qualified plans like 401ks, where you have to offer it to everybody. Uh, this lives on the other side of that. And if you do it right, you can avoid that regulation and just say, listen, I can target you, you, and you. And oh, by the way, I can I can provide a plan for this 1099 consultant. And I can provide a, you know, a different plan for my board of directors. Mm-hmm. And everyone gets incentivized, you know, to, you know, to, to help grow the business. And so it, uh, you know, if the business grows, then, then those, that economic benefit accrues to to those types of people, but you're not disadvantaging your whole employee base, though. Yeah, yeah. So that it's a long-winded answer to your great question, but I think that's one good vehicle to help drive increased retention. Could you dive a little deeper into what Section 162 plans are and what SERPs are and how they kind of differ from each other? Sure. Um, so I just say on Section 162. Um, now, you, know, you could use, uh, you know, stocks and bonds. You could use annuities. You could use uh, life insurance, um, and and I'd say life insurance. You could use a life insurance product that is specifically geared towards cash accumulation, not the retail product that we would buy from our you know broker down the street, you know, which is geared towards death benefit. But um, in in both the stocks and 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 some cases the annuity you get uh, kind of well you get mark to market you get capital gains you you get an annual kind of hit uh, in terms of you know transactions and income and capital gains and things like that in the in the life insurance side of that you don't it's just it, it's a vehicle that you know accumulates over time and then you take uh, if you do it right obviously you you can have tax advantage distributions down the road. But a 162 plan basically entails a company uh, acquiring in behalf of a key employee. Uh, I'll just continue to use the life insurance example, but they'll acquire a life insurance policy for that person. Uh, The person owns it. Obviously, that's a taxable benefit 
that's being provided. So the employee has to pay tax on it, but generally you'll get a gross up from the company. So there's no net impact for the employee. And then, uh, and then they own that. And so they can use that for house, car, education, whatever down the road. And you could write uh, kind of restrictive uh, endorsements on the policy that say you can't take a distribution for five years or 10 years or whatever the case may be. Uh, that probably is more applicable to the executive ranks and board of directors. Uh, when you deal with key employees uh, and maybe to a lesser extent consultants, you know, you would do a more like a, a SERP, which is involves company-owned life insurance as opposed to life insurance that's purchased by the company for the key employee, but it's company owned. And so, and you can put a, a vesting schedule and a restrictive uh, uh, employment benefit agreement, a REBA on top of that, that says if you leave after year three, then there could be a clawback of some of the benefit we provide you. Or, you know, if you, you know, you need to stay to year five, which may be a little long, but you know, it, it basically it kind of it provides a, a break. It's not going to handcuff somebody to a desk and prevent them from walking out that front door, but it's going to provide a big disincentive that they're leaving behind something or they know they're going to have to pay something back. Yeah, yeah. Would you say that this applies more to employees who have families rather than kind of the younger generation? Um, I think that's a fair question. Um, obviously, you have a more complicated you know, P&L and, and balance sheet when you have a family and, you know, a more complicated set of expectations and, and future, future events. Um, but, I mean, I would argue, though, that it still has applicability to people that are younger and single because the anticipation is, you know, four out of five, you know, probably more than that are eventually going to get married and be in that position. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's a matter – uh, it's that trying to find that happy intersection of of preference and opportunity. Yeah. Uh, because some people are going to say, you know, like I said before, they say, well, I want a piece of the action. Yeah. You know, and, you know, some people are going to say, you know, listen, I want the money now, right? But if uh, a company can come in and make the argument, well, if we take the money that we would would have paid you more now and put it into this, the SERP, if you will, or this – uh, deferred uh, compensation vehicle, if you will, and let it grow for 10 years, well, here's your downstream benefit. I mean, that really opens eyes. And there really aren't too many people that are doing that right now. And I think uh, getting back to the general theme of M&A and how it impacts the value of a company, you know, if you could uh, you know, as a valuation appraiser, if I saw somebody with a non-qualified plan on the books to lock down three key employees, that would that would absolutely have a bearing on my value valuation in a in a positive way. Uh, so, um, anyway, why do you think more companies don't do this? Um, I'd say it probably has a lot to do w with awareness hmm. um, and and education and. Um, you know, like I said, deferred compensation has been around a long time, uh, but some of these other areas, uh, SERPs, 162s, I mean, you know, have been a byproduct of some legislative change and treatment changes by the IRS over time. So um, there aren't um, – uh, there just isn't as much information out there. Uh, 
But I will add, if you'll let me, <laughs> uh, is that um, you know all politics aside, what President Trump has done with this executive order uh, in in trying to enhance uh, multiple employer plans as a better, uh, more cost-effective vehicle for people that don't have 401ks to get into that space, I do think that that action is going to help draw more awareness to this whole notion of you know alternative forms of comp- compensation and, and retirement savings. Gotcha. Yeah. As we tried to tackle the whole issue of what do we need to assess that becomes important in what an owner and providing output that an owner can use, kind of that news you can use uh, that they, they can that they can help, you know, bridge that value gap. Well, there, uh, we, we talked to business owners, people that are in business, that have sold businesses. We talked to business brokers, uh, small and middle market M&A folks, uh, and, and spent about a year on due diligence trying to find out, well, what's really important? What, what matters uh, most in the successful transition sale and what often gets, uh, for lack of a better word, screwed up? Mm. And and that it really falls in in five key areas: uh, finance, operations, sales, leadership and culture, and owner psychology. And so, in the in the financial area, obviously you have to have good statements, good controls. You have to have a, a good um, you know set of um, procedures. And you know, obviously, bottom line is you have to have good books and a good process. And you can't have, you know, uh, one person writing thirty thousand dollar checks. I mean, just basic blocking and tackling, then mitigating your risk. You know, operations. Um, often people don't spend enough time kind of looking at their margins and what's my unit cost for this widget or what's my unit cost for this unit of labor, if you will, and uh, and they lose track. Of they they look at raw profitability instead of you know the opportunity cost that they're incurring by not doing things operationally very well and some of it also relates to HR um, you know human resources I mean we've seen more than once somebody not having a handbook uh, you know not not having their handbooks and not doing uh, making their employees aware of certain. Uh, Department of Labor requirements. It can, it can be as simple as that. And on the sales side, um, I'd say we find a lot of companies that have gone, kind of gone from the, the garage startup to, you know, five, ten, twenty million dollars that still operate uh, across all three of those pillars, actually. But, you know, I, I think in, especially in sales, that they're order takers or they've got somebody on staff that has a great relationship with X, Y, and Z, and we're just going to milk that. But they have no sales strategy uh, and really no executive on staff to say, well, how do we maximize the use of CRM and and how do we attack our end markets and what what do we do in terms of you know engaging you know marketing to help us do sales and those are two different things. So that's that. And then leadership and culture is kind of, you know, kind of self-explanatory. Um, but most people, it's it's such a fuzzy concept that you know, you know, I, I think if if you don't have somebody that is a working professional that can look from the outside in, um, I, I think companies would find that, you know, on this supposed heat map, if you get five executives in a room, 
you know, they may have characters and traits that make them operate really well as a team, but if you remove one out of that equation, then it, it just gums it up and you're not nearly as efficient. So that's really important. And that often, when you don't have that leadership and culture tied down, that often, you know, can, can impact a business. Again, that's what a seller is going to look at. And then owner readiness really relates to, um, you know, the, the owner psychology. You know, what, what's your motivation? Are you motivated to sell because you're tired and frustrated of the business? And if you were able to fix some things that could be assessed, would you be happier? And, you know, would you be willing to, you know, hold on to that business longer or, you know, would you have a better transition? And some people, you know, they get a, a, divorce, a divorce, divorce, and, you know, then they've got to split up the interest. Some people, you know, have that that they've got to deal with, but other people have the choice of saying, you know, why am I, you know, selling? And am I ready to sell? And am I ready to not go to the office that's, you know, that's been my home away from home for however many years. So there's more psychological elements over here in owner readiness. But those are the five key pillars of value, as we as we call them. I'm curious, does the the value of culture differ by industry? Um, yes, I think so. Um, I think if you're a, a widget manufacturer uh, and you're um, – your key differentiator is being able to provide volume, you know, just, I mean, having that throughput is paramount. Um, but if you're providing a service, um, and those are two, you know, you could drive a truck through those, you know, manufacturing and service, but, you know, service is much more about people. And, uh, and I think in industries that are more, especially more competitive on either side, you know, you know, the differentiator is, you know, are you f- efficient, you know, because if culture is bad, uh, oftentimes, you know, the other things, finance and operations, are not going to be good because um, you you kind of lack that lack that esprit de corps, and a customer is going to tell that. And if you're and if they're price sensitive, you know, or if the, you know, depending on the price elasticity in that particular business, you know, they could say, well, listen, I don't feel like you have your arms around your business, whereas you know they do, and I can pay you know, $20 a, a widget less or, you know, whatever. So I, I think it does. I think it does. Do you have any last piece of advice for business owners looking to potentially sell their company? Well, I think it, it yes. Um, and, and I would say, particularly on the valuation side, I mean, is to have somebody uh, provide a value, a baseline. Again, if you're not ready to sell uh, today, and it's going to be one, three, five years down the road, at least have a baseline. Then you can benchmark it and say, well, in year two, you know, we've updated that valuation and we've picked up, you know, a 5% value. Well, does that 5% match your sales growth? And, you know, I think those are really, really helpful things for a business owner that sits here today uh, and says, well, I want to be at the ranch in five years. Well, it's a great tool for them to, to help them uh, set a baseline so that they can meet those objectives. And I think a business owner, too, needs to plan out what that, uh, call it the afterlife, looks like. You know, I think a lot of people uh, want to sell and, you know, there are a lot of serial entrepreneurs out there that um, want to go on to the next thing. But there are a lot of people that, you know, that want to go retire and just kind of live off the fat of the land, so to speak. And, um, 
And, and I think, you know, getting your business right size, knowing what your valuation is, and doing individual planning that um, that gives you some perspective on, you know, what that picture looks like for you as an owner is, is really important. That's great advice. Eric, where can people go to learn more about you and your practice? Well, they can go to our website uh, at uh, – our firm is uh, BKA uh, Wealth Consulting Incorporated. Uh, we are in Cedar Park. Uh, we have a – our business consulting is operated out of our uh, single-member LLC called uh, BKA Business Consulting, which is where we do valuation. Uh, you can go to the web uh, and find us at www.bkawealth.com. Awesome. Thanks again. Mark, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure.